Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, February 13th at 11.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. Paige Winfield-Cunningham of The Washington Post. Happy to be here. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. And our special guest, Congresswoman Donna Shalala of Florida. Hello. As you can probably hear, we are taping today with a live audience here at the Kaiser Family Foundation headquarters. Thank you, audience, for coming out on this rainy day. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So I want to start with the president's budget, which came out on Monday, although it already feels like many weeks ago. Some there's a lot of proposed, yeah, there's a lot of proposed Sunday, cuts right? for someone who promised as a candidate never to cut Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security, right? I guess the, the big, the big cuts are Medicaid, yes? Uh, they are. Um, this is not a new thing. We have seen a similar situation with the budget before. This is more of a policy, a political document. It's more of a messaging bill. Um, we saw nearly a trillion dollars in Medicaid cuts. The Medicare cuts are more geared towards um, savings that would slow the growth. They're more granular things um, like site-neutral policies so that the administration can say that this would not hurt beneficiaries directly. But these are not really going to go forward, but already the Democrats are capitalized on them capitalizing on them and and using them, I'm sure, on the campaign trail. Yes, Congresswoman, I take it this this budget document is sort of a favor to the Democrats, isn't it's it? It's a gift, <laughs> but it's terrible uh, for the American people when they see that the President of the United States and his administration is cutting everything from the CDC to the NIH and Medicare, Medicaid, um, and then simply shoveling money over to defense uh, and to Homeland Security and a couple of other things. So Space. It's, um, it's an evil budget from my point of view. Um, uh, you know, and it's, it's easy to say it's dead on arrival, but it sets a tone uh, for the campaign uh, that's ahead. Which we will get to. In a little bit, but I want. But it's sort of—I mean, every budget, including the ones you were part of in the Clinton administration when you were secretary, every budget is DOA. Some are deader than others, um, but in this one is as dead as can be as a budget. But it is really a vibrant sort of roadmap for. It's both a campaign document and a sort of manifesto for a second term. A campaign document for both parties. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, there are, as, as Congresswoman mentioned, there are cuts that that are requested for. The CDC and the NIH, things that are not just to have bipartisan support, but when we have a potential, you know, uh, pandemic happening, seem very unlikely to take place. And, and probably from a public, public health point of view, not very wise. It's a cut um, that hits the most vulnerable people in our society. Um, the SNAP program, the old f- uh, food stamps uh, uh, program, um, among other things, the disability community uh, will would uh, take a look at this and say, "Oh my God, what is he doing?" They're one of the although this budget, like every budget, has interesting things, which I'm sure people will find as they page through the rest of it. But one of the things that seemed to pop up on Monday was this idea of taking tobacco regulation mm-hmm. out of the Food and Drug Administration and putting it into some separate. You know, agency at HHS, probably a new agency. Um, and it would be a political appointee, Senate confirmation in charge of – I mean the FDA commissioner is a political appointee, but the, the office of the FDA within FDA is not a – it's a career science organization. The, the office that's in charge of tobacco it's regulation currently, yeah. now. Um, I'm surprised by that because we've talked about separating the food out from the drugs. We've never talked about separating tobacco out. It looks to me – like someone wants control over the politics of tobacco. This is an idea that Joe Grogan had talked about, yeah. and he sort of says that it's ridiculous for the FDA to be in charge of this, that the FDA should be in charge of health, and that 
these are not health-related issues. No, they're health-related. So, they're just not healthy. No, he right. says it's, he right. said the FDA should be food and drug, but nicotine right. is, in fact, a drug. Right. I'm just wondering if, if this is something that might come under discussion. I mean, there's also been proposals for FDA to be spun outside the Department of Health and Human Services and have the FDA commissioner answer directly the president. Social Security used to be in the Department of Health and Human Services, and it was taken out. The FDA, the former FDA commissioners, I believe, all the living ones together, I think Julie and I were there for that announcement four or five, not a long time ago, four or five years ago. Yeah, a couple of years they ago. They all asked for that. They want to be an independent or a sound Right, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's but a, they didn't say, um, but give away tobacco while you're at it, no. <laughs> I, got, I got an email from a former Secretary, former commissioner, rather, the other day, and all I said was, "Is this legislation? What is this?" I mean, it, it was, um, it, it was. It's not going to be received well in the public health or anti-tobacco community. No, it's not going to be uh, received well on the Hill no. by no. either Democrats or Republicans. I mean, let's be honest about it. Spinning off the FDA is an interesting idea. It's a regulatory agency within a department. I always protected it. If the White House called and said, hey, can you find out this from the FDA? I'd say, no, it's a regulatory agency. (laughs) Other secretaries have not been as firm about that. And I think the FDA commissioners have felt increasingly like the agency is being politicized. Um, I, I farmed it out a little bit, and I talked to some people on the Hill. I didn't find much interest. It wasn't that ag wasn't willing to give it up because, you know, the agriculture... Uh, committee uh, has jurisdiction, uh, but there wasn't a lot of interest. I think what we really need to do is make sure presidential candidates understand it's a regulatory agency and you can't let your secretary interfere. Yeah, which is came up, I know, during the the the, fight, the lengthy fight over Plan B, the uh, emergency Also, Congress, just about 15 years ago, I think you were in office, specifically and explicitly passed legislation saying, yes, tobacco is part of the FDA. There had been some questions about the extent of FDA jurisdiction. There was a Supreme Court case and in the mid-'90s, late-'90s, I can't remember mm-hmm. the exact date, and Congress then went and, in a bipartisan basis, addressed a number of tobacco, sort of our last wave of tobacco activism in the late-'90s, and um, – you know, when the states were negotiating their settlement, and Congress did after that. I can't remember. The, Rebecca May, it was 2000, 2001. At some point around then, they, they actually right. said, yes, the t- you may regulate nicotine. Yeah. Um, and they gave them explicit. And what about vaping? Right. Yeah, I mean, we're, we'll have a bill up in the next couple of weeks, um, a very comprehensive bill. It's Pallone Shalala, and it, it takes care of flavors, among other things. Much more comprehensive. The president literally sold out uh, to the industry and... I think he regrets that now because he didn't get the kind of feedback he thought he was I going think he to get. regrets getting into the issue at all. Yes. I think that's what he said. Well, we don't, and we'll have a very comprehensive bill supported by the public health community. Do you have any Republican sponsors on that, or you'll try? Um, or? Yeah, I think, it, yes, because it passed um, energy and commerce that one, right. um, easily. That's a big concern. Well, let's talk about some things that are also on the legislative agenda. Um, We're seeing action this week on surprise medical bills, something Congress tried to get over the finish line last year and didn't quite. Um, The overall effort is bipartisan and has the support of President Trump, who at least for the moment isn't sorry he's getting into it. Um, But there is still a pretty big divide between those who would reduce bills by setting a benchmark price and those who would allow providers to take their claims to arbitration. Congressman Shula, you're you're active on one side of this, right? I am. Um, uh, one of the things I learned here at Kaiser is that the best public policy, particularly health policy, is a balanced policy. You have to ask the question, whose ox is going to be gored? And that is, um, what are the stakeholders' interests in this? And, and in this case, um, I would argue the stakeholders, the providers, um, the hospitals, uh, the docs, the hospitals, um, and the insurance companies – we ought not to put our thumb on one versus the other. It ought to be a more balanced. Everybody wants to protect the patient. All of the bills protect the patient. The question is who pays. And I, I have argued strongly that it ought to be a shared responsibility as opposed to uh, allowing the insurance companies off the hook, which I believe the Energy and Commerce uh, Committee has done as well as Education and Labor. Um, and... Um, you know, there can be an appeals process like New York has. There are ways of handling this. But the most important point is the balance, uh, the balance. And, and I really feel strongly that the best health policy finds that balance. I don't believe we're as far apart as you think, and I do believe we're going to end up with a bill. Um, we uh, had a real debate in education and labor um, 
but it's very clear to me that there's there's a way in which uh, Chairman Neal and Chairman Pallone and Chairman Scott can work through these issues. But One, Congresswoman Schiller, if, if I can ask a question about that, because it's been really interesting to watch um, the divides over this. It hasn't been the traditional Republican-Democrat divide. Exactly. And so I know you're in favor of the Ways and Means Bill, which would go put all of these disputed surprise bills into arbitration. And it's been kind of interesting because you've also seen a lot of the conservative groups line up behind this legislation and kind of attack the other benchmarking approaches, saying it's government price fixing, et cetera. How do you feel about those attacks? Are those unfair? Well, on um, First of all, it is government price fixing <laughs> uh, when you get right down to it. But they're Medicare the, prices. There's already they're actually government letting price the insurance mm-hmm. company set the price in, in this case. Um, you know, my point would be that you just – sometimes you have the heavy hand of government uh, in which you lock everything in. And sometimes you need a lighter hand and say to the participants, you guys work it out. Not um, – if you look at the experience we've had around the country, and I believe we should look at states' experience. That's the tradition of Kaiser as a matter of fact. The New York experience, Texas, uh, Washington, D.C., very few end up in arbitration. The government doesn't pay for arbitration. The loser pays. Two parties come in with their number. The arbitrator picks uh, one or the other, uh, and the loser uh, pays. Only a 1,000 cases in New York uh, went before the arbitrator, given the millions of cases that could have. So you can't say every case will go to the arbitrator. The whole system ought to be designed in which they discourage anyone going to the arbitrator, and that's what loser pay does. It's not in anyone's interest to get to an arbitration. If they can't agree in 30 days, which is what the Ways and Means Bill says, then they can go to the arbitrator. But let me tell you, 99.9% of these bills will be worked out between um, the provider and the insurance companies, and government ought to once in a while stay out of it. Let them work it out. But everybody wants to protect the patient, and all the plans protect the patient. So um, that's where I am. But it's out of experience in not favoring one versus another. Congresswoman, I wanted to ask how you see this evolving. We've seen it start in the Senate with a benchmark approach, and then over in the House Energy and Commerce, they said let's do a benchmark. Then if it's a claim over 1250, then we'll move it to arbitration if the disputes continue. Then it came down to 750. It's been the shift has been towards the viewpoint of the providers. So how do you see it evolving from here? And would you vote against if something like the education and labor and energy and commerce approach was on the floor? Would you vote against it? Um, I don't think it's that's going to be end up being on the floor. And by the way, you have to go back and forth. You can't just talk about the Senate Help Committee. You got to talk about Cassidy too. So you need to go back and forth because Cassidy has a very different bill that's closer to ways and means. Uh, my only point is: look, if you do twelve fifty or seven fifty, the number starts coming down. It doesn't mean anything because if you look at the size of the bills, they're all under. They're almost all under that amount. So all you're doing is having no arbitration. And all we've said is, you all work it out. If you can't work it out, then you can go to arbitration. And by the way, it's not the kind of arbitration you're thinking about where people go back and forth. They each present a number, it's called baseball, and the arbitrator picks one and the loser pays. So um, again, my point is, government ought not to put its thumb Look, we just gave the insurance companies $150 million. I sat on the board of insurance companies. So you can't say, you know, that I came out of one area. I'm worried about academic health centers. I'm worried about rural health care, about rural hospitals. Um, I'm very worried about children's hospitals. All of them would be hurt um, because of those other bills. Can I ask one more question, though, about the industry input here? And there's been a lot written about these dark money groups that are funding these ads, and it's sort of turned into a bit of a food fight between the insurers and the providers and threatened to derail the whole thing. I know we're seeing more energy now this week and this potential for passing it in May. But, um, you know, does it concern you at all that even on this issue where there's broad bipartisan agreement that the consumer should be held harmless, should be protected from these bills, that that these industry differences over how the policy should be worked out could still get in the way of actually passing a reform? 
I actually don't think there is much industry differences is the way we look at health policy and what is the role of government uh, in particular. But let me say something about the ads. Uh, those ads attack me, even though I was on the side of a much more even uh, bill. They were silly. Most, most people in, in communities couldn't figure out what the ads were about, and that's why they're no longer uh, around because they were so confusing. They were on during the debate last week. Yeah, but you Was know they were totally they were totally confusing. Yeah. Yes. And no one understands Docs them. and and hospitals have come around to see us. Look, I've met uh, with all of the players and I've heard them all out. Um, I'm on the side of good health policy, and I don't think you should favor uh, one group over another. If you're trying to bend the curve, then everybody's got to share in the pain. And by the way, this is a backdoor way of bending the curve. Let me tell you what we've done every time we've bended the curve. The dock fix, how do you like that? How many times did we uh, put it aside? 15 times? Okay, let's go to the next one. Um, we just repealed the Cadillac tax, the health care tax. If, if we the medical adopt, device tax. <laughs> if we adopt what um, energy and commerce or um, education and labor adopt, we'll be back fixing it. I assure you, because we'll have narrowed um, uh, the number of participants uh, that people can use, uh, the number of providers. We'll have narrowed the provider list um, as a result of that, and we'll be back fixing it again. This is one of those things where you ought to be extremely careful not to pick one side or another. That's my argument. One, I don't want to belabor this point too much, but I have one more question. One thing that a year of reporting on this has shown is that it's not just doctors and hospitals. It's also these private equity firms that have invested mostly in the doctor groups and I think to a lesser extent They're in the a hospitals. They're a small percentage of the total number. They're a very small percentage. And with all due respect, if you don't like disruption in the healthcare by the private by the private guys, wait until next year. They're all playing at one level or another. Um, so uh, they don't have any particular, any more clout than anyone else, uh, than anyone else that's arguing over this. Uh, and that's why I continue to say the government ought to be very careful when it gets into this. Um, and, 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 and look at, look at the amount of savings here. Why is there so much savings? Very simple. The insurance companies make a lot of money and they pay taxes. Now, the CBO did not take into account uh, doctor salaries going on or other kinds of income going down. But again, I would argue we ought to have a balanced, a much more balanced approach. It was the closest thing, as we've seen in years, to something in healthcare that everybody agreed on. That we started the year, this was, this was the lowest of the low-hanging fruit. Nobody likes surprise bills. Nobody defends it. It could be bipartisan. And here we are in February it's, it's got energy right now, as Rebecca said, but we've seen it get close and fall apart several times before. Um, I mean, sometimes we feel like we'd be surprised if there's a bill. And I mean, what is this sort of energy and difficulty and sort of tortured path tell you? I don't think you? it's tortured at all. I think uh, Speaker Pelosi is going to say, you guys get this done. It's mostly going to be guys, by the way. I may get my <laughs> nose in there, but um, she basically wants us to agree on um, on something. She's made that very clear. Um, I don't. I, I'm assuming, knowing her thinking, that she'd like something a little bit uh, more balanced. No one's going to be happy at the end of this, except for the patients that are going to be protected. That's good public policy when no one's uh, when no one's happy. But. Um, we just <laughs> we just gave really encouraging summary, <laughs> but we just gave. But particularly when you're when you start talking about bending the curve, someone's going to lose their income. I mean, this is this is these are not the you know just uh, uh, things that we say. It sounded like it was easy because we had agreement on protecting the patient. But then the question was a simple question: Who's going to pay? My argument is everybody ought to pay. Not and you ought to not put your thumb on one group versus another. And by the way, we just gave 150 million dollars to the insurance company, billion dollars to the insurance companies. So finding more balance, I think we're going to uh, try to do. But don't think there's just one bill over at the Senate. Oh, Senator I know. Cassidy is going back and forth at the same time, and everybody's talking to everybody else. And by the way, it's quite civil. It may not be civil out around us, but it's quite civil, and we've had relationships for a very long time. I've worked with Frank Fallone and with 
um, uh, with the other chairman for a very long period of time. I have found that sort of over my 30-some-year career covering health policy on the Hill, there's always been sort of a couple of big issues that, you know, everybody's at loggerheads about and fighting and all the, you know, the presidential campaign and whatnot. And then there are these sort of smaller issues that are still important that tend to get done on a bipartisan basis, which brings me to the next one of these, which is prescription drugs, which started out, again, Republicans, Democrats, you go out and look at the polls, they all want to see something done about prescription drug prices. The House has passed its bill. You know, this had a whole lot of steam. Again, Republicans, Democrats both want to do it. The president's desperate to do it. It's not happening at the moment, right, Rebecca? It is not. And I'll I'll be interested to hear what Congresswoman Shalala says about this. I mean, President Trump clearly wants a win on this. I think Democrats probably don't want to give him a win on this. I think that politically it wouldn't be smart to take away one of the top issues on the campaign trail in the Kaiser poll in January. They said this was the top issue. Substantively, I don't think Democrats would have an incentive to give in and compromise because the president is not going to accept exactly what the House has passed in H.R. 3. And I think even, is the Senate. even on the I was about to say, and even this week, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that there are differences within the Republican caucus on surprise bills and on prescription drugs. I think at this point there are nine Republicans that have said they're for the Grassley bill, including Grassley, two more who voted for it in committee but say they don't like it now or they, they want changes. Um, so I think that there are a lot of challenges in the Senate just to get the Grassley bill through. And it sort of flipped a little bit, I think, because last fall I feel like people were thinking about prescription drug as drugs as being the number one priority and surprise billing coming second. And now it really seems like the committees are focusing on surprise billing. And I think if you talk to like the most op- optimistic folks, they say maybe there's still a little bit of a chance to do something bipartisan that's kind of small board, but mm-hmm. somewhere in between what, some elements of Grassley widen, but obviously something less than HR3. Um, but the politics are interesting because I think Pelosi still wants to do something, but there is, a, to your point, there's a lot of division among Democrats as to whether they want to give Trump a win. We all know he would be out taking total credit for any prescription drug legislation. Well, he's already yeah. doing yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, it's, he's doing both things. He's demanding that Congress act. He, he put it front and center in the State of the Union. Um, he tweets about it. And at the same time, he's saying he's already done it. And he cites a, a, a price index, and he cites it accurately, but it's not rep- that particular index, which is heavily generic, and it's drugs that, that you buy at the, at, the, at the drugstore, has dropped. But the entire universe of drugs has not, of all kinds of drugs, including the most expensive ones, has not dropped. Insulin is obviously is the poster child for the drug debate, and it's still a problem. So the president is doing both things. He's saying, yes, I have brought down prescription drugs and, you know, cites this index that the average person does not know what it is. And, I mean, we all had to look it up. And um, <laughs> at the same time, he's um, really calling for bipartisanship and also making the, sort of the Democrats as obstacles to this. Although so, he, he's not hitting that super hard this week, but you never know what next week. Will <laughs> you never know this afternoon. Congresswoman, where are we on prescription drugs? Well, I'm not so cynical about, uh, to say that the Democrats don't want to cut a deal. Um, we repeatedly – here's what we did. We took the president at his word. He campaigned saying he wanted to negotiate – directly with the drug companies like crazy. So we took him at his word. The index that we used was suggested by, basically, by the administration. Um, And so we designed a bill, and he talked at length about the Europeans having lower drug prices than we did. So we actually designed a bill based on what he said during his campaign. And now, of course, they've backed away talk about interest groups. Big Pharma obviously has some concern. And they've played around with silly gimmicks um, like importing drugs from Canada, which frankly is not going to happen. Uh, you could run across the border Your governor and buy wants drugs. it. Yeah, my governor wants it. I told him it was the silliest idea I ever heard in American politics. Um, first of all, the, the pharma sells drugs to the Canadians based on the number of Canadians. That's how the price is set. On the number of Canadians, he didn't say there could be a million more Floridians. Um, and and um, so that those are signed kind of nice-sounding end runs. So uh, we would love for the president to remember what he said during the campaign and to take up our bill. Will we cut a deal before that? Wyden, um, obviously, uh, uh, Ron Wyden would love us to, to move ahead. I don't know whether we're really going to do it, but it's not because we didn't take the president at his word. 
We designed a bill consistent. I'm asked all the time about drug prices and out-of-pocket costs. I'm never asked about surprise billing. That's a Washington issue. Now, we have cases of surprise billing that are on the front pages all the time. But no, I've done 21 town meetings. No one's asked me about that. Now, they didn't ask me about impeachment either. So, uh, <laughs> but, but that's not, no surprise that's that not the central <laughs> That's not the central but issue. Drug prices, drug prices is. are, and out-of-pocket costs are. But, um, but to be fair to us, we did exactly what he said he, he wanted to do. And is, we're going to probably stick with it at least for a period of time. Let's see what happens uh, with Grassley-Wyden. Um, I've talked to both of them over a period of time. But I don't, you know, we're not that cynical. We would love to get a drug bill. We'd love to, anything, we've sent... You know, 400 bills over there that are bipartisan, we can't get them to take them up. I mean, it's very frustrating where we could get some bipartisan uh, legislation. This is a case where we can clearly get bipartisan legislation. How hard is it to deal with this administration? Obviously, every administration changes its mind about things as, you know, negotiations But not twice in one minute. That's what I was (laughs) going to say. This administration, it's almost impossible to tell where they are from one hour to the next. It's not just our problem. It's the Senate's problem. Um, the truth is that it does no good to send a bill over to the Senate unless you know what the president's position is because they don't move. And and the leadership will admit it. They want to know where the president is before they're going to spend uh, any political capital. So, yeah, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because the administration doesn't have clear positions. In the case of drugs, we, we thought they had a clear position and we wrote a bill accordingly. But and the I, other thing is there's not – there's divisions among the Republicans because some of the things that the president has proposed, which are some of the things in H.R. 3, um, including this benchmarking to overseas prices, are not traditional Republican ideas. And they make Republicans cringe. So – and there, you know, there, was, there were like 44 pages of drug ideas and a lot of them were really not – a Medicare – a drug negotiation was not something that the Republicans have proposed since, you know, since we started Medicare drug debate in 2003. So um, there's, there's division within the administration, and there's certainly a lot of space between what the traditional views on the Hill, which is what Mitch McConnell's reflecting, and what some of the ideas out of the administration. So that's sort of one schism. And then within the Senate, if Grassley needs to get more Republican support, he is talking to Wyden. I don't know the content of those conversations. I know there's some talks about how to change the bill to get broader repeal. But if you change it too far to get more Republicans, you could lose Democrats and you could get further, not closer to the House. So um, this is just – this is nowhere near resolu- – I mean, yeah, you, things, cha- things can change really fast on the Hill. We've all seen that, you know, stuck, 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 goose, you know. But the, the – it doesn't feel – it does not have a feel like there's a deal um, anywhere imminent, you know. Later in the year, does everybody decide that it's in their interest, both parties' interest, to do something I can see that. I mean, I can see the scenario Rebecca talked about is, you know, why give them a win? I can also see this is what we've been hearing about. This has been the top of the health, top health care issue for four or five years now in the polls. You know, maybe both sides will feel they have to do something. I don't know whether that something would be really ambitious and broad or a down payment on something, you know, something – Something that they can say, I, I went home and I can go home and do it. So there's this May deadline coming up that Congress set for itself that only extended the extenders until May to, to give itself a few months to perhaps try to tie up some of these health issues. Congressman, are we going to – is Congress going to meet that deadline for any I of these I hope things? so. We're working <laughs> at it. Uh, we intend to. We were part of the negotiations obviously and the speaker has made it very clear that that's a deadline. Then, then after that is going to be then, – then we're going to be all election all the time, one would presume. But is the thought first to try to come up with a unified House bill and then vote on that first in March or April and then you have kind of – that's when you would start negotiating with the Senate or how do you I see think, that playing out? Uh, you know, um, we've got appropriations too that we're uh, working on uh, very hard. So, you know, I don't know the answer to that question because I think that that answer is really still up in the air in terms of a strategy. Well, I want to talk about campaign 2020, since we haven't in like a week, um, and bigger picture health debate. We've now had two contests in Iowa, where we're still not sure exactly what happened, and in New Hampshire, where it seems that Senator Bernie Sanders and former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg are pretty much tied. This would seem to suggest that Democrats are kind of split between the candidate who wants more sweeping change in the health care system, 
and the one who wants more incremental change or maybe not. Um, it seemed, you know, when you sort of look deeper into some of the exit polls, everybody's sort of second. People are not staying in these lanes that political pundits have set up for them, you know, where you're either for the liberal or you're for the moderate. They seem to be bouncing back and forth between. What do we think we know at this point about where the public is on the big health care debate? Congressman, I, what are, go ahead. What are you seeing? Oh, I, I was just going to say, I, I feel like what one thing that has come clear to me is just thinking about Pete Buttigieg and how he's positioned himself on this. Um, you know, he was very quick last year to was one of the first candidates to really kind of step back from Medicare for all and propose more, you know, his Medicare for all who wanted. And now in retrospect, you know, if you look at the exit polling, he is the top choice among voters who want the public option versus Medicare for all. So he's really been pretty successful, even though he's probably, you know, one of the more progressive candidates in the race. He's no Amy Klobuchar, but he's been really successful in kind of nabbing those voters who maybe are uncomfortable with Medicare for all, more in favor of public option. And there's a lot of voters who are for Medicare for all, but then if you ask them do you like the public option? They're also for that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of there, there's there's a, a certain amount of fluidity of how voters feel, and there's also a certain amount of confusion about what these things are. I mean, we've mm-hmm. all seen the polls where you know people are for Medicare for all, but think they can keep their own insurance. Mm-hmm. So despite the enormous amount of words that have been spent at the <laughs> debates and talking about it, writing about it. Um, there, you know, it's not clear that the public has a other than there is a core. There's certainly a core who are ideologically committed to Medicare for all, and they're part of Bernie Sanders' base. But there are many other people who are sympathetic or enthusiastic about Medicare for all, without necessarily understanding what it is. And oh, by the way, the public option thing, which we'd also don't understand, sounds good too. So it, there's sort of a a gap between what's coming out. Um, in the exit polls, which do not give 500 choices. It's a limited option the voter has to to choose from. Um, So there is sort of a gap between the emphasis and what you do see when you drill down or or, or a little deeper. Congressman, what are you hearing from your constituents? Um, Well, it's not Medicare for all. Um, uh, They want to keep private health insurance. But I have the largest enrollment in Obamacare of any district Mm -hmm. in the country. Mm -hmm. I have over 100,000 people that are enrolled in Obamacare. And what I hear is not Medicare for all. And in fact, don't just look at Pete Buttigieg's um, uh, numbers. Look at all the other numbers of people that were opposed to um, Medicare for all. But everybody's for universal health care. Everybody's for um, keeping pre-existing conditions. Everybody's for their friends and neighbors being able to buy affordable health care. So um, uh, the most extreme is let the government do it. But everybody else says, let's get there, make it affordable, protect pre-existing conditions, and make sure that all of us have access to some program, either through our employer um, or through the government or through some uh, private entity uh, that's subsidized, uh, for example. So I think that um, Democrats and Republicans, the vast majority, want everybody to have access to good health care and want to protect pre-existing conditions. That's what we'll run on. Um, But the question of whether the government should pay for the whole thing and take over the whole thing, I think basically there's just a small number of people. They all support Bernie for the most part. And everybody else would like to keep their private health insurance. We've seen this issue before. We got killed in the Clinton administration. I was just going to say, you were were famously part of, of an administration that tried and overreached. Yeah. And I have still have marks on my back from that experience. <laughs> and as soon as someone said to me, well, I debated – I had a big primary and everybody else was for Medicare for all. So I debated them in front of labor labor unions. And people forget that it was the labor unions that locked in this employer-based system. After World War II, we could have gone with a centralized system the way the rest of Europe did, but we didn't. And the labor unions exchanged salaries for benefits and – um, so the left is also wary about um, um, Medicare for all. So the politics, again, we've been talking about how the politics, strange bedfellows. This one's complicated, but not too complicated in the election because Bernie represents the minority of people who are still locked into Medicare for all. Everybody else has said, keep your private health insurance 
And uh, let's make sure there's a government role, whether it's a private option or whether my preference is we build on existing platforms. We don't invent something new. We take the Affordable Care Act and we improve it. Before the end of the year, Democrats will come up with strengthening the Affordable Care Act, uh, using it as a platform to reach deeper into the middle class, which is what we need to do now. So you're one of those Democrats who flipped a Republican district. Um, Do you worry that if Bernie Sanders becomes the nominee, it's going to make it harder for you trying to run for reelection with someone who's supporting Medicare for all at the top of the ticket? Yes. I mean, and I assume that you're not alone in that. No. (laughs) (laughs) All the flippers. (laughs) Joanne, you were going to ask a question. No, I think that, um, well, she sort of addressed what I was going to say, but the, the, um, you know, when we talk about the moderates, you know, we talk about the Amy Klobuchar's or whatever, the moderates' position is to the left of what the Democrats were running on when they were passing Obamacare. And don't forget how hard that was. You know, mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. really, we, we tend to, we said, oh, yeah, they did that. But it was a huge, I mean, it took them a century. And um, literally, I mean, the idea had been kicking around in some form since Theodore Roosevelt. And um, it, it, it was a tough sell, even in the House, it was a tougher sell, really touch and go. I mean, it was touch and go in, this, in the House at the last minute over abortion, but even l- larger issues were hard. Um, there were centrist Democrats that concessions had to be made to get their votes when the Democrats did have 60. And we sort of have forgotten. Um, and the unions flipped out over the Cadillac tax. Right, yep. and which they now don't have to worry about anymore. So the whole, I mean, what people take as the starting point um, you know, the, the, the country on a bipartisan basis really does think that covering pre-existing conditions is the right and fair thing to do. President Trump now says it's his idea. So he's been tweeting about it. I, I did that. Um, he saved it. Yes. Saved so, right. So In the courts. So, right. So, so until we get the next ruling. So um, the, the, you know, I mean, the, we, we sort of have, you know, we're, we're a very short memory country and, you know, maybe because we have the 24-second news cycle now. But, you know, the, the moderate position is a position that a decade ago was a progressive position. And the conservative position on things like pre-existing conditions has also – there's a real significant value shift. We're not um, – the, the, there's still people – in our Medicaid debate, we see other things at work. You know, where there's the, the deserving poor issues and, and, you know, they should be able to do it – you know, pull themselves up. We have not solved that. We have not reached a, a national consensus on that, but we have reached a national consensus that did not exist a few years ago on, on the pre-existing condition. Congressman, I also wanted to ask, I mean, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the ACA, and that was such a monumental piece of legislation and such a heavy lift as Joanne notes to get there. Um, but did you ever imagine that 10 years out, mm-hmm. we would still be in a place where health care ranks as the number one issue for voters and the top concern? Yeah, actually, um, I did. Um, Remember, uh, with the ACA, we never got a chance to do the technical corrections that you normally do after you've introduced a major bill. Um, And we never got a chance to – the assumption was everybody would take the Medicaid extension, and not everybody took uh, the Medicaid extension. So we could have closed the gap even more. Uh, Florida has the highest enrollment in uh, the Affordable Care Act because – Basically, people, um, they're working poor and they were able to get into the Affordable Care Act, even though we haven't gotten the Medicaid uh, extension. I I think, you know, it was a very heavy lift and it took a Democratic majority to do it. But it's a perfect example, like surprise billing, where you have agreement on the problem, but you don't have agreement on the solution. Only where you have both can you get something uh, passed. And in all these cases, the politics is more complicated. The role of the unions in Medicare for All, for example. Um, the fact that unions now are insurers. Why do you think that many of the unions have opposed the surprise billing that, um, uh, that some of us would like? Because they're insurers now and they're employers. So they sound like insurers and employers when they talk to you. Because uh, some of them have income by providing insurance, and that's their major income, not uh, uh, people paying their dues. So the politics gets very complicated, and you have to unravel it. It's Health politics is much more complicated than it was 10 years ago. 
but we still have the same issue, and the, the same issue everybody believes in. Let's get everybody covered. You want to bend the curve? Let's get everybody covered. I think the big issue is not what we're talking about, but what's happened to health care, health insurance, and that is high deductible plans. I think part of the problem in surprise billing is people are talking about surprise billing when they're really talking about high deductible plans. High deductible plans have caused the politics of -of out-of-pocket costs. And we've not been watching that as creating a different politics for us because we have shifted people, employers have shifted people to high deductible plans. And now people are seeing costs that they never saw 10 years ago. When they were debating... What, uh, health savings accounts, talking about high deductible plans. Even then, I remember they, they were saying, well, $1,000 would be a high deductible mm-hmm. plan. And your employer would put in right. some money to your health savings account. Now we have all these people with multi-thousand dollar deductibles and no health savings account. Yeah. Or if they had a health savings account, their employer's not putting anything into it. I think it impacts on, on surprise billing, and I think it directly impacts on this out-of-pocket cost issue, which is what we're picking up in the polls that's what I'm hearing because I sit at my town meetings and I don't talk. I listen to people and I try to unravel what they're really talking about. And I see the polls too, but I believe what I'm hearing. And what I'm hearing is these high deductible plans are, are basically stopping people from using their insurance. And yeah. we've got to pay more attention to that. And I think that was one of the things that the Affordable Care Act didn't do. It gave a lot of people insurance, but that they still couldn't afford to use. It it gave the high-end protections. I mean, people used to have more lower deductibles, but they had lifetime caps and annual caps. And so if you got a a really big bill, you you were stuck. Now you have the protection against that million-dollar bill, but you don't have the protection against the first 5,000 or 10,000 or 12,000 or whatever. But you do get a a whole set of benefits on the front end that have been very important. Uh, to low-income working people, to home health workers and and to others. But we've got to fill in these. We haven't solved these problems. And like I would argue. a giant Medicare donut hole. Yes. All right. Well, I think we can take a couple of questions from the audience. Please tell us who you are. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dan Carnese. I'm in from California. And I really wanted to follow up on exactly what we were talking about. You know, high deductible plans certainly are a symptom of a problem that now we need to address but as the famous health economist, late health economist said, it's the price is stupid. So unless we get a handle on health care prices, we're not going to have any alternative, either have those high deductibles or have the federal government spend even more money to try to do some kind of relief. So I'd like to ask the congresswoman, what do you see consistent with your principle of trying to bend the cost curve and having everybody have skin in the game what would be your, in, in a comprehensive health reform plan, what would be your approach to dealing with those hospital and doctor prices that there, are driving There wouldn't everything? be a single thing that I would do. There are, there are probably 15 things that you have to do over a period of time. Every, every time we've tried uh, to do one thing, um, you know, we've come back and made the correction so that we have to build a consensus of some kind, and you can't do it just by slowing down the increases. We're going to have to look fundamentally at the way we're organized. Um, now, I think that CMS under Obama started to look at some of those things, but that was immediately you know, cut off in the new administration, and we're going to have to go back and do that. Um, but I don't think it's ever going to be one thing. Now, a couple of things would help. Um, uh, if we could do something about drug prices, but that's a small piece of the overall of uh, the overall costs. Um, if we could do something about high cost people, now we had some things in the Affordable Care Act that would subsidize uh, the higher cost people for the insurance. Uh, now we can do some little things like that. If you ask me, one thing I would do, um, it wouldn't probably wouldn't be health care. It would be tripling the uh, the earned income tax credit. I would bring people's incomes up pretty quick so that they could afford some of these pieces, and then I'd start working on um, the 15 things that you'd have to do. Lots of economists have written about this. Kaiser has spent decades, um, um, the experts here, looking at these issues. But it's not, it's, it's not poking one thing, because when you poke one thing in healthcare, something else uh, goes off. Um, and so healthcare is very difficult to get your arms around. But again, 
it would have to be a share of the pain, let's agree, and then everybody uh, holds hands and decides to do it. Another question. Hi there. I'm uh, Dr. Bruce Holman from the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group, uh, Kaiser Permanente here in the Mid-Atlantic States. Not affiliated with us. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, Just reminding everybody <laughs> else. <laughs> uh, my question is, a lot of the discussion, or pretty much the entirety of the discussion, is about healthcare insurance reform right. rather than healthcare provider reform. Uh, fee-for-service medicine uh, incentivizes doctors to do more care rather than quality care. And my question is, what, what's the current thinking or potential future thinking for the actual providing of medical care uh, in a cost-effective, high-quality way? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's hard, right? I mean, the, I think there's bar- – I think there's – it's not that if every – member of Congress could pass like an MPH exam on this. But there's a, a lot of them do really understand it, and the others understand the ba- – most many of them understand the basic concept that you're getting at, which is fee-for-service is not economically the best way to go, and it's not quality and care coordination and communication the best way to go. So sort of – I mean, and there are experiments going on. Um, I mean, this administration did not try to repeal MACRA, which, you know, it's yet another acronym for those of you who don't know. It is pushing doctors into a, a, away from fee-for-service into alternative payment mechanisms. I mean, there are lots of experiments on, you know, bundling and the whole, all the other acronyms. But it's, it's difficult because some of the experiments don't work. And then also there's resistance because, you know, underneath fee-for-service is profitable for a lot of people and they don't want to give it up. So there's, there's um, you know, quality and value. I mean, what's value to the system is not necessarily what's value to a specific neurosurgeon. Um, you know, there, it, it, it's – so I think there is bipartisan understanding and I think there's a bipartisan, you know, reasonable commitment but it's 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 extru- it's it's not like an it's you know it took us fifty years to get into it. I, I would say it's sort of ten years of trying to get out of it, and we're not anywhere near out of it. But we're uh, we're getting out of it in Medicaid because we've shifted to HMOs basically in Medicaid and in Medicare. The shifting to Medicare Advantage has moved away from uh, fee for service as well, and that's moving rapidly because we're overpaying. Yeah, right. voluntarily, all voluntarily, but they're getting more money. My mom is forced. With all, <laughs> with with all due respect, the companies are getting more money to do that. So, um, uh, and we're moving rapidly uh, in that in that direction. So it's going on. Um, whether it's producing the kind of cost containment we expected uh, can be uh, debated. Uh, and certainly if you're disabled and you're in a state where they've put you in an HMO, uh, just shoved you into an HMO and you're not getting the same kind of services you got under fee-for-service, you're, you're very angry about what's going on. But a lot of it's going on now um, just because of the incentives that have been put in place by the government and because employers have demanded uh, some changes in the system. Unfortunately, at the same time, we used high deductible plans. Uh, high deductible plans as a way of of also uh, containing costs, which has not been successful in in my judgment uh, as some of the other initiatives. It has been for the employers, though. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but unhappy employees is not what you want. <laughs> Another question, Drew Voitel with the Medical Group Management Association. Um, you brought up macro just in the previous uh, question, I and I'm wondering if. Uh, <laughs> I'm wondering if, in, in your view, you feel that MACRA has bent the needle on our march towards value-based care, if there's still some more work to be done. Well, health, no, of course there's still work to be done. I mean, look at healthcare spending and look at what we're talking about and look at what consumers and patients are feeling. I mean, clearly it hasn't solved the problem. Are some things working? Is there some progress? Yes, but it's uneven. Like Representative Shalala said, you know, managed care there are places where you can find it working really well, and there are places where there are another set of incentives that aren't good for a high-needs patient or a disabled patient. There were a lot of scandals that were brought to light in Texas, for instance, last year, some real horror stories. And yet there are also places where Medicaid-managed plan, care plans are doing you know, a great job getting you know, psychiatric telemedicine to poor kids who wouldn't otherwise have it. It's a mixed picture. So um, 
you know, macro wasn't designed to fix things overnight. But, you know, I mean, I think it was a significant, first of all, like we're not standing in the hallway every September for four months waiting for it. Mm-hmm. It's the, been good for the doc fix, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Our feet. Right. Right. 17 years in a row. But no, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's what I said. I mean, I mean it's, it's one of several tools. I mean, that addresses Medicare payments for physicians. It doesn't address everything. As you restructure because of that, as, as things change and as things reconfigure, other there, there are sort of spillover incentives to other things have to fall online. But, you know, we have somebody here from Kaiser Permanente. That's, it's grown. It's been successful. But what is it, in 11 states, 13 states? What are you in now? I mean, it's not there are many mm-hmm. people who love it. I mean, just I know we know we all know people who don't. It's there's no one model that's that is working for everybody at this point. I mean, if we go to Medicare for all, you know, that's a whole other series of issues. But yeah, I mean, I would say it's changed, but not a, it's not a fix. It's not a final. Everything's okay now. Julie, you ought to pass out that chart that uh, Drew Altman has. That every time we're arguing about healthcare reform. Costs slow down. Slow down because everybody's afraid. So just keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) We can't keep talking too much longer because Congresswoman has a plane to to catch. Um, And since Valentine's Day is this week, and it's seventy-five in Miami, I want. (laughs) (laughs) Valentine's Day is this week, so we are keeping with our tradition and offering up our favorite health policy valentines from Twitter. And a shout out to health policy nerd extraordinaire Emma Sando, Mm -hmm. who dreamed this idea up back in I think it was two thousand and twelve. Uh, we're going to let Joanne go last because she's an overachiever and wrote her own. You will see why. <laughs> so, Rebecca, why don't you go first? Sure. This is from Joshua Israel. The red roses are ready. The champagne is still chilling. I love you more than private equity loves surprise medical billing. <laughs> I love that. Paige. All right. Mine is from Meryl Pothen. Sorry if I'm butchering that name. The White House is red, but some states are blue. So health policy by litigation is all that we do. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is from friend of the podcast, Ariel Levin Becker. Roses are red, dear health policy nerds. Can we at least agree? Healthcare is two words. (laughs) (laughs) And Joanne. Roses are red, our podcasts at Kaiser. We hope what the health makes you feel wiser. (laughs) (laughs) So... Thank you all. That is our show for this week. Thank you, live audience, for coming out in the rain. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Rebecca Adams, DC. At PW underscore Cunningham. At Joanne Kennan. At Rep Chalela. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.